But if you want to put forward Christianity as a reasonable account of the world, as the truth about the world, then you've got to take science seriously. You've got to say this world is a world with billions of galaxies and billions and billions of stars in those galaxies. And it's not just the planet Earth and nothing else. Welcome to Depolarize. I'm Dan Koch. I'm Ellen Morrow. This is a show where we look for common ground at the intersection of, si- not science, today science, but normally it's faith. We never talk about science. <laughs> we don't believe in science. It's faith, psychology, and uh, politics. Not a lot of politics today <laughs> because- Thank God for me. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Because this is another installment of our new segment, While You Were Evangelizing. Ellen, do we need to- Remind people by playing the clip again, the movie please trailer. Don't, please don't do it. But we should, you mean, right? I really do love it, okay. but I don't think no, it's we're gonna, necessary. Yes, no, we're going to play. Here okay. we go. For Lucy, loneliness was a way of life. But the moment she saw Peter, she oh, became a believer. Then fate stepped in. What can I say, Peter? I was never envious of anything that you had until now. Caravan Pictures presents... Sandra Bullock in a film about love at second sight. Who are you? While you were evangelizing. <laughs> Dan, have you ever even seen that movie? I haven't. It sounds like Jaffrey and I have a date night coming up where we need to watch it. It is one of my all time favorite movies. Anyway, but that's not what we're doing today. We're doing while you were evangelizing, not while you were sleeping. And you can get a longer explanation of what this means if you go back to the first episode of this season, which was about hell. But I'll give a real basic recap. It's something like this. For 70 years or so, the evangelical church has run its own parallel institutions. That's colleges, educational materials, music, pop culture, films, films, whatever. And that kept us, those of us who were raised evangelical, from secular culture, but it also kept us from liberal mainline Protestant culture or really any type of culture where Christians engaged seriously with the modern world. Because we didn't want to be of the world. We wanted to be not of the world. And on this note, by the way, I have received a recent text Twice now from my mom, who's been listening to episodes and saying, Daniel, your dad and I were not fundamentalists. We did not instill this stuff in you. And I need to just say publicly, it's true. Most of what I talk about, uh, sort of the negative stuff from evangelicalism, except for Republican talk radio, mom, that is all you. But otherwise, most of it comes from various teachers I had or youth group leaders or something. It's mostly not my parents. parents weren't around. It was just... (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't a turnkey kid. My parents were around. No, but I mean, same with me. It's not like my okay. parents were telling me that dinosaurs weren't you don't real, learn but everything. Like, where did I get that? Yeah, you don't learn everything from your parents, right? Yeah. You learn from other people too. So anyway, it's today <laughs> we're talking while you were evangelizing, what was going on while we were evangelizing, what was going on within mainline Christianity about science and faith? Because we both know what was going on in our little circles about not science and faith. a lot of science. I remember uh, being at Awana with my friend Ryan. With your he, vest on. He went to Awana. I had. I don't know if I had a vest because I was a. I was like a guest. Maybe there was a guest vest they gave you. But 
I remember them talking about the Leviathan in the book of Job. What is that? The, it, well, it's just like, it, no one knows, but it's like, behold the Leviathan. It's like God saying, look what I have made. Is it like a paste or, or I don't, a craft or No, it's like a, a big fabric? sea creature or oh, something or like a, a large thing. creature. And they were like, see, that's dinosaurs. Behold the Leviathan. That's what was going on in my evangelical upbringing with science and faith. But today we're going to hear from Keith Ward. He is a philosopher and author of tons of books, over 10, both academic and popular audience books. He's been a professor at Cambridge. He's been at Oxford. Dude is legit. And as you said, after hearing his opening statement, great accent, right? Really good. So, he should do books on tape. Does he do his own books on I tape? I think he's too busy writing books uh, to record other people or his own that's books too on bad. tape. I think it's a really missed opportunity to have an accent like that and not <laughs> record true crime novels, for example. Let's <sighs> listen to him. Okay. Let's get into it here with Dr. Keith Ward. So, Dr. Ward, to start off, as we were chatting about this episode, you said, well, we should make a distinction between evangelicals in the United States and evangelicals in Britain. How would you describe the different similarities between those two groups? I went to an evangelical theological college to train to be a minister. That was Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. And that was divided really, well, not divided, but it split into two main groups within the evangelical college. One was liberal evangelical. That's an English sense of the word liberal, I stress. <laughs> and then there was conservative evangelical. And they were different, but the conservatives weren't creationists or young earthists. And on the whole, they accepted the general theories of cosmology and evolution. So, so English evangelicals tend not to have that as a problem Though the influence of American fundamentalists is quite strong because of video and so on. And so I think probably fundamentalist views are actually growing in congregations and in community churches. Churches which are not a part of the mainstream churches in Britain. Uh, but I, when you say evangelical in Britain, it just means you like the Bible and you love Jesus. Uh, it doesn't commit you to any scientific views. So interestingly, you describe yourself as a liberal evangelical Christian. What do you mean by liberal evangelical? On the evangelical side, you place an emphasis on the Bible and on personal relationship to Christ. On the liberal side, you accept that there are lots of scholarly interpretations of the Gospels and of the Bible. And you don't necessarily accept all of them, but you accept that they exist, that they're perfectly reputable. So you don't argue about that. You just say, well, there are these different views. I think the word would be diversity. If you're a liberal evangelical, you accept a diverse set of viewpoints. For example, if you say, do you believe in the substitutionary theory of the atonement? then as a liberal evangelical, I would annoy you by saying, which one do you mean? And conservatives wouldn't like that. If they were Calvinists, they'd say, oh, no, you ought to believe the Calvinist thing. But I still believe in Christ and the importance of the Bible. If I could mean evangelical the way that you mean evangelical, then I could maybe be a liberal evangelical in the United States. May I may have to kick that around. Okay, that's right. So I have found the word liberal doesn't go down well in the States. 
it it really just does have different connotations. Yeah, it does. It, you see, in England, it, it goes back to John Stuart Mill, who, who we all respect on if we know anything about him <laughs> as a philosopher, and he meant by liberal not sticking to tradition necessarily, being prepared to embrace new knowledge when it was well-founded and being tolerant and allowing free speech. And that was what he meant. That was it. In terms of rank-and-file Americans, very few people are liberal in that sense these days, right. uh, which is why That's this podcast exists. Right. My contention is that in America, and of course how evangelical you grew up would determine how true this is of you, but the broad pattern is if you grew up pretty evangelical, then you were shielded not just from secular culture and modern science and stuff, but you were also shielded from more liberal Christian culture. You did not engage with mainline Protestantism in the United States. For instance, the type of Christians who would be comfortable with the plurality of atonement theories and plurality of views on evolution and cosmology, we were pretty well shielded from those Christians even. And so the purpose of this conversation is to focus on that science question and explicate what was going on while we were out evangelizing? What were people thinking about? I think in England, the situation is that teaching religion is compulsory in all state schools. There are only two compulsory subjects. One is physical education, <laughs> games, and the other is religion. And you have to have, in every state school, classes on religion. That means that you can't confine people to one particular point of view. People in state schools are expected to know about Islam and Judaism as well as Christianity, and they're bound to know about Catholic Christianity as well as Protestant Christianity. So they're going to get plurality in their state education. Uh, Ellen, I just want to make sure uh, that you and anyone listening understood what Keith was talking about when he talked about substitutionary atonement, because that's kind of a theological term. What do you think that was about, or do you do you want me to say? Well, I mean, since this is a, obviously a pop quiz, uh, <laughs> atonement, atoning for our sins, substitute, substituted uh, in place for. Yes, in our place, basically. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the Calvinist understanding especially but in other circles as well that like god would have to damn us he would have to send us to hell but christ takes our place right he is our substitute he takes that wrath instead of us right and that is one way of understanding christ's work on the cross but it's not the only way and so that's what keith was getting at of like right. fundamentalists would say no it's this way and if you don't like if you don't believe that way then you're done in a liberal mainline or even just i guess a british evangelical even would say well yeah that's one view and there are other views and here's other people thinking of it so i just want to make sure we're clear on that i mean we're clear i believe that <laughs> we're so clear. i know we're what totally that clear. is <laughs> i also noticed that there's a bit of evidence here for my overall argument in these segments right about united states evangelicals and how he showed that they're distinct from, for instance, British evangelicals. Yeah, he wanted to really make sure he, well, he knew good. what he was talking about. It's yeah. funny, you know, he's maybe being like precise because he's a philosopher, but also I think it actually helps to make the point of this whole segment, which is that like in America, there's a big homeschool tradition and there's a big Christian school movement. 
And those schoolings, you are not required to learn anything about Islam or, or yeah. Judaism, except that Judaism for anybody who's really thinking should lead to Christianity, right? You're, you're basically not given any sort of world religions. Uh, well, it's learning. because we were all taught that those things were sin. Why would there be a whole chapter? on like, well, if you're interested in this kind of sin, <laughs> I mean, that's just not what it w- w- would be. Well, chapter 10, various ways to backslide. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like that's not thinking in. of turning your back on the Lord. <laughs> flip to try page 332. <laughs> right. But like, and then even in public schools, like there's all this freedom of religion stuff where like when we were doing evolution in third grade, I was like exempted from class for a couple days. That's so It's very easy. Absurd. And my family was not that was I not know, fundamentalist. It's but very normal. It was just normal. I was exempted from all the sex classes. So, right, so I still similar. don't know what it is. Yeah. Anything else jump out to you about that or should we move on? Um, about science? <laughs> no, about what we said so far. Well, I, I guess mean, we've mostly just laid the groundwork. Yeah. I mean, I just like that he really specified that liberal in his sense is just means like being a liberal evangelical. The liberal part just means a diverse set of beliefs yeah. british sense of I think liberal frees yeah. up a lot of people to say like oh yeah maybe i am liberal as well yeah yeah so unlike last time we did while you were evangelizing with dale and we talked about hell this time we've got an ocean in the way of our comparisons but regardless of the difficulty of the travel let's see if we can manage to characterize what the standard view was I do suppose that of all the issues we might want to talk about, what was the consensus view? This one is pretty slippery, right? Because it's hard to know exactly who is influenced by the more fundamentalist view and and who, like Francis Collins, you mentioned, and and BioLogos, who I just insanely admire, that group. I mean, they are not even now anywhere near the majority view within evangelicalism. So I feel confident that a sort of theistic evolution really robust understanding of the science is still not the consensus view. So it certainly was not the consensus view 20 years ago. That's the impression I get about America. It's, I think that's not true of the UK at all. Right. The consensus view is simply that evolution happened. Charles Darwin is buried in Westminster Abbey with a great sermon saying how marvelous he was. You know, there wasn't any great fight about it. There's a myth about a fight, but there he was. The Bishop of London preached the sermon saying, great man. Because I was converted by fundamentalists. Well, okay, can you tell us that story a bit? Just give us a how. Well, how is it that you were converted by fundamentalists? Okay, well, that, I was in the Air Force, the Royal Air Force in the Middle East. It was very, very hot in the Middle East. It's very hot there. And there was only one building in the station I was at, which was air-conditioned, and that was a chapel. And there was a little subgroup in that chapel, which was fundamentalist. And I play the organ. So I also was in the chapel quite a lot playing the organ. And the, it was like a Billy Graham experience. They said, uh, why don't you pray with us? And I was so embarrassed that I did. And actually, that made me into a Christian. And, but, you see, that was a very small group. And I knew their views were all wrong about science. But they had this experience of Christ, which for me was overwhelming. So I was caught by their faith. 
but I never believed the intellectual bit. We didn't even talk about the intellectual bit, but I knew that they didn't know anything about science and so on. But that kind of explains why you say that you are an evangelical still insofar yeah. as you value the Bible very highly, but also you you think of your own faith as relational and, and personal and experiential. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And that's a good Protestant tradition. It's a good evangelical tradition. There's a, a man, very hard for Americans, most Americans to pronounce, Friedrich Schleimacher, but a great theologian way back in the 18th century you could put it in a nutshell by saying he didn't think the Bible was the foundation of the Protestant faith. He thought the person of Christ was the foundation, right? So that was it. So a personal relationship, that was what it came down to. That's what it was for me. That is certainly the sense in which I remain most evangelical is the personal experience, sort of the one-to-one relational aspect of my faith. So what is the argument for this more fundamentalist, more conservative view of science and faith. I imagine it's going to come down to the text. It's going to come down to how we interpret the Bible and what the Bible is allowed to say or something like that. Well, you'd think that, but I actually, you know, I I teach at Oxford and I had a graduate student at the university who did a lot of research on fundamentalism in the States. Uh, You would think that fundamentalists were fundamentalists because of the way they interpret their Bible. But he found it wasn't how they interpret the Bible. It was because they were afraid that if you believed in evolution, you'd think humans weren't special, you know, just apes. And uh, so nothing special after all. And that is what he thought drove fundamentalism. I think it is. You get all these pictures of apes, you know, saying, is that your grandfather and all that sort of stuff. So it's that fear. Of, of being like nothing but an animal. And I think it's just, uh, that misses the point completely. What's wrong with animals? I'm pleased to be an animal, you know, pretty good. <laughs> well, so putting yourself in that mind, can you motivate that on behalf of the person with that view? Like, what is it about being like an animal that is worrisome or is theologically worrisome, maybe? Yeah, well, it's because I think Although people wouldn't admit it, they have contempt for animals. If they had a bit more respect for animals, they might not worry about being animals. And, uh, you know, you can kill animals, you can eat them, you can do what you want with them, you just play with them if you want. They don't have any intelligence, they don't have any moral responsibility. Well, of course, lots of animals don't, are not very intelligent. But at a sort of sliding scale of intelligence, when you get to the higher apes, they're pretty intelligent. You know, they have moral feelings, it's pretty obvious. So it's a sliding scale, and to say we are, we are the highest developed intellectual members of the animal species. But you know that's okay. I mean, I, I just think if you say we're descended from animals, that ought to make you respect animals more, but it shouldn't make you respect humans less. I'm a mammal. I'm a proud mammal. You said animal. I know, but still, we're mammals. <laughs> It's true. I just got to call out, I did make kind of one weird edit there. We we had a rough edit in between Darwin and fundamentalism, which didn't totally make yeah, sense. Yeah, all of a sudden we really... Yeah. G- this is, I'm sorry, I'm still I mean, learning. I thought that's how the conversation went, and I just no, thought, oh, okay, I'm not keeping No, he's up. not, like, being senile. It's just a bad edit, so whatever. Man, I My could fault. listen to this guy all Dude, day. Keith is the best. And if you end this conversation and need more of him... Find his interviews on homebrewed Christianity. He, he also sounds like um, an 
older male version of Haley Mills. You know who Haley Mills no, I don't is? Know who Haley She's Mills the is. actress that was in the original Parent Trap. Oh. Just the most delightful accent. Hmm. Oh, well, what a delight. Other than an accent, he also is speaking. <laughs> oh, he's content also a wonderful, intelligent. Man. So I don't know what you want to talk about. I wrote down personal relationship and I thought it was interesting. That's a term that got bandied about, we could say, growing up evangelical of like, well, the main thing is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I got so allergic to that phrase as I got older. I think because no one ever explained to me what it was. Maybe that's why the whole altar thing, altar call thing bothers me is because yeah, if it's so personal, why do I need to be flailing my arms down the aisle? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another question. But, but like, you know, it was like, have a personal relationship, have a personal relationship. And then as far as I could tell, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was constituted by do your quiet times and don't masturbate. That was basically what and it meant. And wake up w- way earlier than you need to go to school. It should be, it should, it should just be turmoil yeah, for you to wake kind of up like and the, pray. The Protestant work ethic yeah. of like, you know, better yourself or whatever. But it's interesting that the personal relationship with Jesus thing goes all the way back to Schleiermacher in the 1700s. Like First that's of all, interesting. you just through you obviously practice that name. No, I know how to say it. I have a bunch of friends who are in theology who are in seminary. Okay. So we, we talk I'll about I'll forever same. be the layman in but this relationship. I didn't know that that's where that came from. And, and the idea being that the foundation of Christianity is not the Bible, but it's the person of Jesus. And therefore a Christian is one who has, who's in relationship to Jesus, not in relationship to the Bible. The Bible right. is a record right. of the church and of the Israelites. And I just, I thought that's interesting. That's a phrase that really I've come full circle on. I I do think I have a personal relationship with Christ, with God, but it took me a while. And that's only in the last couple of years that I was able to go, okay, I I do know what that means. And I've, I've been able to fill out that phrase a lot more. It's about prayer. It's about meditation. It's about journaling and sort of listening. What what did you think it was? As I said, I thought it was not masturbating and doing my quiet times. That's all I was like, told. As long as like rule following and, and staying yeah. in line, that yeah, sort of there thing. was there was or or like maybe you could add in worship with your hands up or something. But it was like no yeah. one ever mentioned to me. Oh, and by the way, if you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, there are two thousand years of tradition, mostly on yeah. the Orthodox and Catholic side, of how people have been yeah, here's in some, communicative here's some prayers. Here's some practices. Right. Yeah, I didn't get any of that. So it was like, well, we're really worried about Catholics. The worst but, ones. But yeah. have a personal relationship, yeah. right? But how do I do that? And well, so figure it out as long as you don't believe in dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> the devil planted those fossils. No, but so <laughs> that's dinosaurs. just the thing that I wrote down that I find interesting. And I, I'm grateful that it's been redeemed for me. And I feel I even need to sort of publicly apologize to, to Debbie who's on staff at our church because I kind of gave her a hard time about personal relationship with Jesus stuff. And then within a year I was back in her office going, yeah, I've come full circle on that. <laughs> I apologize. She probably really enjoyed that. Yeah. But what about you? What did, I love did that you we're any- just casually talking about personal relationships <laughs> with Jesus and Darwin. Yeah. Just all getting thrown together. But there is something because if you have a relationship with Christ, there is a sense in which who cares how humans came about? 
Right. You know what I'm saying? Like center yourself. If you think. But Dan, it does matter if, if it changes the character of God. That's the only Mm. point for me where this stuff matters. Because my husband and I talk a lot about like old earth, new earth. Yeah. What does this mean? Like I believe in microevolution, all these things, but I don't necessarily have these conversations. Yeah. I don't want to talk to him (laughs) anymore about it. (laughs) But for me, as someone who just like, I I don't get caught up in all of the stuff because I believe that God is good and true and real. And as we talked about with Dale Martin's episode on hell, not everybody has to be a nerd about all this. Right, 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 right. If something changes the character of who I believe God is, then that's something I want to struggle with. I love that. But if it doesn't change the character of God, don't give one shit. I don't care if it took seven days, seven million years. Don't give a shit. That doesn't change the character of God for me. Good. Well, then you will not be offended by the rest of this episode. Terrific. Too bad I'm out of wine. (laughs) Oh, I'll just get you some wine. That's easily solved. apron <laughs> it's great so is trader joe's and that mattress company casper whip toothbrushes actually harry's razors <laughs> we, if we if we tried we could just oh what's the big one uh for hiring people zip recruiter but i hear matt is, carter say zip recruiter one more time ugh, if i had a nickel if i had the 100 dollars he had every time he said it yeah maybe a thousand anyway This is not an ad for any of those products. This is where we remind you that if you want to support this show financially, you don't just get products by companies. You get more of this show. And we don't get anything. Yeah, well, we get a little bit. I don't get anything. You don't. I don't get much. I don't get anything. It mostly goes to Chris, our editor. Um, this Hi, show Chris. does. Thanks for editing all my swears and bloopers. Yeah, Chris has to go into double time when he's putting the bleeps in on the bloopers. By the way, if you guys don't know, if you've never listened to the end of an episode, there's bloopers. And if it's because of me, I just want to say that Dan asked me to do this podcast. So if you don't like me, take it up with Dan. I've had some hate mail, and I just want to really nail in that it's Dan's fault that I'm here. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know, we do have more evidence. Your dad was interviewed last season, so people could take it up with your dad. Yeah, but also the reason why we didn't air very much of that is because you discovered I'm a terrible interviewer. <laughs> you were you you were nervous. Also, I you shouldn't have interviewed my dad. It it's fine. We water under the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, okay. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, so twice a month, people who support the show on Patreon get bonus episodes they are interviews that i do with various folks that i know or am acquainted with sometimes it's theology sometimes it's politics sometimes it's social questions this week meaning it just went up before today's episode i had a conversation about theology with my friend jack jack holloway you will remember him if you listened last season he was one of the liberal mainline protestant voters that we interviewed And he's currently getting his PhD in theology right now over in New York. And he loves this particular theologian, Karl Barth. But you don't have to know who Barth is to listen. We explain it. And we have a conversation about some of the stuff that he loves about Barth. In particular, this idea of the hiddenness of God. 
And since today was kind of a theological episode with Keith Ward, I thought, hey, it'd be a cool time to release this conversation with Jack. So here is a little bit of my conversation with him. It's mostly Jack speaking about the hiddenness of God. And if you think this is interesting, then you should sign up at patreon.com slash depolarize, become a patron, and you'll have access to this. So here's that clip with Jack. The hiddenness of God is like this awareness that God is not self-evident in, in a sense that like what God is like is not obvious in any way. And Ludwig Feuerbach, he was this philosopher in the 19th century, and he had this critique of theology that all of theology is just humans painting their nice ideas onto the absolute and then calling it God and then worshiping it when really it's just human attributes. And Bart was really moved by this critique. And he came to, to see that like a lot of theology really is just, you know, uh, human self aggrandizement. So the hiddenness of God is an assertion of God's otherness, that God is this fundamentally, there's something about God that is other to us that like, we can't just figure out by using our natural reasoning or our natural observations or our, it's, it's not something that we can intuit from our experience that God is not human. God is infinite. God is transcendent. And God is other. So again, if you want to support the show and get these two bonus episodes per month, patreon.com slash depolarize. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or depolarizepodcast.com. Click on become a patron. Become a patron saint. Speaking of saint, I am working on my episode about the Virgin of Guadalupe. Yes. We talked about. We talked about this. Yes. uh, Dale's episode. It's my homework and I'm getting super into it. So once Ellen's ready, there will be an episode where I interview her about that. And if people more, maybe I could go down to Mexico and make a trip out of it. But whatever. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Okay. Back to Keith. Now, it sounds like you sort of grew up in the soup of the opposing view, which is that everybody accepted science except for a very small minority. And so you've never really had a problem saying, look, faith and science are completely cohabitable. There's no reason to deny fundamental scientific findings. How would you respond to someone who said, I don't feel so comfortable doing that? I mean, how, how do you motivate that ease? Well, I I see the problem that a lot of very vocal scientists are very anti-religious. So that doesn't help. And they laugh at religion. That doesn't help. So what you've got to get is just get some really good scientists who are religious. And the best example, I'm afraid he's dead, but the best example is Isaac Newton. Very religious man. And in fact, he invented the law of gravity, which he did, for religious reasons. He thought... If God is very intelligent, if he's as intelligent as I am, then he would make a universe which operated according to laws which could be understood and predicted because that's what the intelligent being would do. So he, that way he got to the, these universal laws of gravity. So you say, look, science has always been driven by this concern for a rational explanation of the universe. And that takes you straight to John's gospel. At the beginning was the reason the word, Greek word logos means reason, amongst other things. So in the beginning, it was reason, and reason was God. 
So this is a rational God. I think you've got to stress to people, God is a rational being, not an arbitrary bloke who goes around saying silly things if he feels like it, but a, but a supreme reason. And good scientists, actually, that's one of their dogmas. There is a reason for everything. You can explain everything in principle. There's a cause. That's a very religious motivation, you know. Einstein was interesting. He thought the Bible was a load of legends. I mean, that's true. But he did think there was a rational intelligence of some sort behind the universe. I mean, that's a, that's a good start. I would say, look, we're not on opposite sides of the fence here. You know, let's not start with the funny things God does in the Bible. Let's start with thinking, is there a rational mind behind reality? And if you ask that question, you'll get lots of the best scientists in the world who say, well, could be. Uh, And that's the meeting point, really. I think that for a lot of people, especially in the States, if you just read sort of popular science articles and books, they have become a part of the culture war here in a lot of ways. Yeah. And people, you know, stake their ground as I am scientific and atheistic or and you all are unscientific and religious. And it can be very hard to disentangle oneself from that pervasive culture war. What do you recommend for someone who wants to take science seriously, but is either alarmed by or suspicious of or exhausted with that constant culture war? I think what's needed is just a better knowledge of the history of ideas and the history of philosophy. There used to be great courses in American universities called history of ideas courses, you know, great books, things. And I think they were great courses. And if you look through those, you start with Plato and you go Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, Descartes, you know, you get the great names. And you ask the question, look, I've read all these things, I know about them. How many of them believed in God? And the answer is nearly every one of them. Nearly every one of them. Just name one who didn't. The intellectual strength of the Western mind is held by people who believe in God. So what's happened to these scientists nowadays who say it's irrational? They haven't read any philosophy. And often scientists assume that what you see and touch is what is real, but quantum physics has put an end to that, really. So once you get into quantum physics and the ultimate mysteries of the universe, then you wouldn't be so sure. Seeing that one of the great minds of the past have said, They haven't all been orthodox Christians, not by any means, but they have almost all believed in something like a God, an intelligent creator of the universe. That's the start. The counter argument to that is just, well, give it enough time and then 500 years from now, we'll look back and our favorite philosophers will have been atheists or or something like that. That, and, And isn't there something to that? I mean, I myself am a Christian, but isn't there something to that? Maybe you're getting at this, the difference between, well, these guys aren't necessarily all orthodox Christians, but they certainly don't have this militant, atheistic understanding of the world. But a lot of what makes someone a Christian is when and where they're born, not necessarily the way that they live. You know, in 1933, 99% of Germany was Christian. That didn't uh, have much effect. So it's, it's not so much that we care that everybody ascribes to Christianity. What your point is more... They're theists. I mean, it's not, there's not a fundamental science God problem in in these ways of thinking. That's right. Yeah. It might be more difficult to talk about specifically Christianity, 
because that does seem weird to a lot of people if they're fastened on things like did he really turn water into wine could he really levitate and walk on water if you start there the game is lost really you can't start there <laughs> i can think of two reasons you shouldn't start there one is that first of all no one believes in Christianity because they believe Jesus walked on water. It doesn't go that way. If they believe that Jesus walked on water, it's because they have other views about, say, the validity of Scripture for some other reason. Or because they believe they have a personal relationship with a spiritual being who fits the description of Christ. Yeah, I think right, that's, exactly. that's why. Yeah, And then another reason you wouldn't want to start there is that there are plenty of people who have a personal relationship with a spiritual being that they think fits the description of Jesus Christ, who also have other interpretations of miracle stories in the Bible. And yeah. for them, it's like tangential at best, whether or not a man levitated on water. Absolutely. That's my view. I'm not going to deny it because I don't know. I wasn't there. I think it's logically possible. I think it's very improbable. But then it's supposed to be very improbable. So I'm agnostic about that. There's one miracle I'm not agnostic about, and that's the resurrection. Okay. I do think that's pretty important. But I don't think it's as odd as all that. You know, people say, oh, this is really odd. It's not. I don't think resurrection is very odd at all. But that's another story. No, I'd like to hear a bit more about that. I think that the standard view would be it is quite odd to say that a person was raised from the dead and just this one time and just this one guy, that certainly is an exceptional thing. What is it about it that you think, ah, oh, it's not so odd? I just think it's not odd at all. Uh, well, let's do it by stages. First of all, do people live after death? Okay, some people think no, but millions and millions of people think yes, people live after death. So that's not odd. It's a widespread belief. Secondly, do dead people ever appear to other people? Again, millions of people think yes, they do. There are lots of recorded instances. I think I've seen one myself. You know, I don't find it all that odd. It's unusual now. And then, so you press it a bit further. Well, uh, so some dead person could appear. Could they appear in as material a form as Jesus did? Well, I don't see why not. If you can have a ghost, which is a visual appearance of something, then you could have a tactual experience. You could have one which was solid. I mean, why not? If you're going to have visions at all, you could have a really good one. And then the, the clincher is, well, of course, the resurrection was unique in its context because the one who appeared as living after death was in fact the Messiah, was the Christ, did have a special role in God's plan for the world. So, of course, it's meant to be very unusual, unique, because it showed that Christ was the Son of God, the chosen one to carry out God's purpose. But it's not anti-scientific. It's not so unusual that things like it have never happened. They have. The dead have appeared. The dead exist. Once you put it in the context of God and belief and life and death, it's really not all that odd. It is unique, it's supposed to be. <laughs> but not odd. I like him so 
much. He is the best, man. Isn't he the best? I love that just, and I. this is the last time I'm going to talk about his accent, but I think people will agree, just listening to him talk, it sounds like a recording from the 40s. I disagree that this is the last time you're going to talk about it. No, well, now that you said you. that, I will challenge that and will keep it to myself. Yeah, I, but what about the content I, of what he said? Well, but. I love that he was like, yeah, the miracles, I don't know if that really happened, but I'll tell you what, the resurrection makes sense. Well, he, he said, like, people in the modern world are not Christians because they believe in miracles. Yeah, yeah, and then someone tells them, oh, check out this miracle. Yeah, right? it's, it's not it about the, the miracle, yeah. like the walking on water. It's like, I don't know, I wasn't there. It's like, probably, it like, I don't know, it's improbable. But when he started talking about the resurrection and breaking it down... Yeah. Is this unusual? No. Do people believe in life after death? Yeah. Do people, people see do, yeah. ghosts? Yeah. Yeah. It really doesn't make it that wild when he when he explains it like that. Yeah, I, I, I feel mean, because like, we base our faith around yeah the most crazy belief. We believe that mm. this man who healed people, who came from essentially nothing. Walked on water and like died, and then it's cra- it's just I it's crazy, and that's where faith comes in. And he's saying like it's not that crazy. Well, yeah, it is still sort of crazy. It's kind of like well, of course it's crazy, Dan. Yeah. But what I'm saying is he just made <laughs> sense of all of it, and I've never made sense of all of it. So for me, I do still think about how crazy that claim is. But another thing he said that I think is a better for me is a better anchor is like people have a relationship with a spiritual being that looks a lot like Christ. And, and so that's for me, the reason that I believe the resurrection, it's not because like, I don't have any evidence, not really for the resurrection. Like I have the Bible and it's sort of, okay, there's multiple attestations of the same event. Like there is some evidence. It's not like there's no evidence. Well, Nobody believes in the resurrection because they, have put it all together. Well, and that there are a sense. lot of people who say that that's why they believe it. Well, so you and I whole, might doubt that. The whole point is that faith, we have to have faith to believe. You gotta have that. faith. But yeah, I find him very clear. I think, I still think I maybe have like a bit more cognitive dissonance than Keith has on that, which does not to say I don't believe it. I do. But I like his sort of breaking it into particulars of like, well, do people see people after they die? They certainly do. Now, they could be wrong, but they certainly see them. Right? Like, like that, it, what he's saying is like, that's not unusual. No, and plenty of people believe that they're, you know, they believe they've communicated in some way. Like plenty of people right. believe that. They could all be wrong, but plenty of people right. believe if it. If one person yeah. was on the news saying like, I think that ghosts are real. The news kind of throws me it off. Wouldn't, it wouldn't be like in history, yeah. this one person so believed this, this thing. This person thinks No, it's pretty ghosts? common. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's Yeah, right. So this would be my sort of liberal thing is like, and then throw on a layer of when people were writing these accounts of seeing the risen Christ, it was 2000 years ago. Yeah. And so what language did they have then? And so then that's even another layer of like, Okay, there's like maybe different ways that we might phrase that now. Like Dale Martin, for instance, who was on the first episode this season talking about hell, in some of his other writings, he talks about Paul's vision of the risen Christ. And he says, and he's a New Testament scholar, and I'm sure people disagree with him. I disagreed with him a lot on the 
ghost stuff. Yes, right. You disagree on the ghost stuff. But listen to this. His language for how he translates Paul's experience of his vision of the resurrected Jesus, he says it's kind of like if we saw a body made out of electricity. That is sort of the language that Paul uses in his day for like what he saw. You're talking about an aura, Dan. Right. Maybe it's an aura. It's an aura. Right. So that's the thing that people. For instance, (laughs) if that's true, if Martin is right about what Paul saw, then I just it does sort of like open these questions up. Like we shouldn't be so dogmatic about it, I guess. But you really liked how he kind of broke it down. Well, I don't like that he was so sure that. Mm. because everything is created, everything has to be matter. I think that's very close-minded. I think that God is... You're talking about Dale, episode one. Yeah, I think that God is bigger No, I don't think he was saying that everything has to be matter. I think what he was saying is that for... And now we're back to episode one, if you guys listen to that. He was saying that for ancient people, they didn't have a concept of matter and supernatural. All of it was Was natural, not matter, but natural, created by God. And so he was kind of making his own distinction there, but mm. we can move past yeah, that. Back let's to move Keith. Past it. Anything else you want to chat no. about before we move on with him? No, I want to hear more. I want to hear more of his accent. Told you. I'm so shallow. I told you. Switching gears back to just this general <laughs> posture of science and faith, how central do you think this is to Christian theology? Or is this the kind of thing that Christians can disagree on? without much consequence? Well, actually, I think it's absolutely central. I mean, you can be a Christian without worrying about it. That's certainly true. But if you want to put forward Christianity as a reasonable account of the world, as the truth about the world, then you've got to take science seriously. You've got to say this world is a world with billions of galaxies and billions and billions of stars in those galaxies. And it's not just the planet Earth and nothing else. And it's a universe with a 14 billion year history. So human beings are on the periphery of a small galaxy in a huge universe. Now, I think that's that's a shattering view. It's an amazing view. And it, it shows you that God is a much more amazing than you might think. And it shows you how to put Jesus into that cosmic context. So I, I think that's the importance of science. How can you put Jesus into a cosmic, you know, a huge intergalactic context. If you can't do it, you're really not making Christianity. You're not seeing it as a really truth seeking enterprise at all. Right. Like if somebody wants their whole theology, their whole religious worldview to be one where, well, we need to assume that there is no life elsewhere so that there could have been one man, Adam, and then one man, Jesus. And we need to make sure there was never any men before Adam. And, you know, like there, if you have all these constraints that you need, you think you need theologically that are just really rubbing up against what we know with great confidence about. Of course, we don't know that there are other life forms, but you don't really want to bet against them in a universe with billions of galaxies that each have billions of stars. And with just the creativity of God, if you believe in God's creative powers. So something along the lines of that. Yeah, and that's most important because if you read Paul's letters, 
See, people don't, people who call themselves conservatives don't really read the Bible properly. They, they invent the things which they put into the Bible. They read into it things that aren't there, things that are there. Paul's first letter to the Ephesians and the first letter to the Colossians, they both say Christ is the one through whom the universe was created and all things exist in Christ, right? So there is first chapter of Colossians and first chapter of Ephesians. Now, that's a cosmic view. What is all things? Well, it's everything that exists, whatever it is. Even for Paul, he had a pretty little universe, but even so, it had millions of angels in it. You know, there were extraterrestrials in Paul, and they were in Christ. So what are you talking about then for Christ? You're not talking about a man, Jesus. You're not saying that's Christ. Well, it embodies Christ. Yeah, Jesus embodied Christ, but Christ must be cosmic. It must be a cosmic power. And how much greater Christ will be if it, if that power embraces millions of stars and galaxies and planets and creatures beyond imagination. It's such a an enlargement of the imagination. Christianity becomes exciting, not constricting. And that's what I'd like to see people saying. The Christ is is the universal mind. And it was embodied in Jesus for us. And it might have been embodied for other races and types of beings in many other different ways. And it's still Christ. I'm theologically minded. And so I listen to that with great fervor and warming of the heart for someone listening who is because this is not, after all, a theology podcast. It's more of a politics and psychology and faith one. But maybe can what does that mean for a sort of non-theological Christian, like how could you apply that to just a, the average Christian's life, the, the difference between those views of Christ? Well, for a start, you could accept evolutionary science and cosmology gladly. So there's no problem. You could say this is enlarging our understanding of Christ. This is this is what Christ is really like. And that's important. And it enables you to not to feel that you're opposed to any rational understanding. You don't have to go into it all yourself, but you can feel this is part of the most rational understanding that human beings have ever managed to come up with. Since Augustine, incidentally, Augustine was quite clear and said explicitly that the first two books of Genesis are not to be taken literally. They're not about days of time. And that's in St. Augustine. So, I mean, this is not a, a new terrible theory. It's the conservatives, fundamentalists, who've got a new theory. As I say, it started in Chicago in 1920, and it's just an ignorance of the whole history of theology, complete ignorance. It's pathetic. And that's what makes me mad, that, that they just don't know their own history follow Christ and think for yourself. We've got to do that. Break out. Break out from these constricting things. Oh, I, Adam must have played with the dinosaurs. Ah, why? <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I'll ask you is just, and I'm sure we've mostly picked up on this, but if you were to succinctly give your view of how faith and science fit together, how would you describe that? Yeah. And, and what would be the basic argument for that view? Okay, what I believe, and lots of philosophers have believed this, is that the basis of the whole universe is mind, that mind and consciousness is more real and more directly known and more basic than matter is. So the whole material universe is based on a supreme mind, the logos, and that's the mind of God. For us, 
And for people who can't perhaps envisage the whole of the universe, Jesus shows the nature of God in a human life. I think that's what's important about it. If you, if you want to say, what is God like? Is God a being of perfect love? Then the life of Jesus, I think, shows that God is like that. But if you want to say, and what do you mean by God? You've got to say, God is the ultimate supreme mind, which is expressed in this universe, which evolves, which changes, which develops, and we're parts of that universe. So adding the cosmic bit <laughs> to the biblical bit, gives you a, a great vision. Christianity is an expanding vision on sciences, looking at the mechanics of how it works. Man, he's so wonderful. I wish that anytime anybody asked me any question, he could just <laughs> answer for you. In. <laughs> yeah. But that last bit, so Christianity is an expanding vision with the cosmic bit and the biblical bit. And science is just looking at the mechanics of how it works. Yeah. I mean, I have written a constant thing. I've written some other things down, but like what's better than that to talk about? I don't think there's much. I don't, I don't think we can add. He's one of these people that, you know, we listen to and then I just don't, I mean, I don't feel like I have anything to add. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. Most of the stuff is clarifying stuff. Is there anything you wanted clarified from what he said? No. I mean. <laughs> everything, but nothing. No, but also <laughs> I need like a thesaurus, but also no. <laughs> I want to shine a light on one thing, which is like the vastness of the universe, right? Like this, this sort of like shattering view of the universe and if Christianity is really going to be a truth-seeking enterprise, in his words, then, like, we can't ignore the vastness of the universe. And it ought to tell us something about God that the universe is so big. And that, that is, that's probably, like, to me, the most interesting question in the world. I love the idea of how vast is the universe? What do you mean you love that question? Meaning that's how vast it is. <laughs> it's as vast as you can think of. It's ha- there. You cannot. How vast is it? You can't even get your head around it. That's how vast it is. And if you believe in a God that loves you, then that God also made that universe. And but that- also if you're really terrified of vastness and you want to figure out how the God that you love and loves you made the universe that vast, you need to tackle that. Is this like the opposite of agoraphobia or claustrophobia? I mean, yeah, the yeah. opposite of claustrophobia is like, like I hate the idea of the vastness, but really? I have to tell myself God's good. God loves me. It doesn't matter. It yeah. can be as vast as he wants it to be. Vast, vast, vast. It's his choice of vastness. I hate vastness. My mom used to tell me that she was really anxious about heaven lasting forever. The, like, the idea of forever totally freaked her out and made her anxious. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, but once you, I mean, I think but I think all this stuff is once random. you get in it, it doesn't, it just doesn't like, matter. Again, I like I that, said, if it changes the character of God, that's, that's what it's different. About. 
for me, also you to should not, watch the show Forever with Amy, with Maya Rudolph. We and will Fred watch Armisen it. It's, it's on, on our Amazon. List, yeah. It's incredible. But for me, the idea of ceasing to exist is terrifying. For my mom, the idea of existing forever is terrifying. But it, Apple, uh, whatever. How do you know? I'll tell you what. If every day could be my best day, I would want to live that forever in the vastness. I don't care how vast and how forever. Well, then that's what you should hold on to. I mean, who knows what it's like. <laughs> Your face is telling me that that sounds terrible to you. <laughs> no, it's just like you would get sick of it. It's, it's kind of like Groundhog not, Day. Not if it, it was would have the to, best. It's going to have to be so different than what this life is like. Well, it's just going to have to be, be different. different. There's no days. It's so vast that there's no days. We don't have language for it. Let's just agree that if we all thought about this stuff more like Keith thought about it, that life would be better for us. We thought about everything, how like how Keith thought we would we wouldn't be sitting in your basement right now, like r- rubbing our eyes, feeling white guilt, and Speak thinking about vastness and dinosaurs. I mean, look, if we can't garner some help from an Oxford philosopher in his seventies, then what are we doing in life? So you we can. A, you think he's a real saint? I don't want to get into this. I don't know what makes a saint. Thank you guys so much for listening. In the show notes, there will be links to some of Keith's work. The I asked him which book he would recommend, and since this is not... You asked him one book? Well, a recent book. So oh, since okay. this is not a theology podcast, he has a book. It's on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, but it looks fantastic. It's called Love is His Meaning, and it's about Jesus and his parables. Also... Dan, you keep saying that this is not a theology podcast. <laughs> I want you to know that this is a theology Today podcast. kind of was. And the last one. Well, I'm okay. Saying, I'm you're doing, veering. I'm veering. I'm certainly veering, and I am unapologetic about that. I've read his more philosophical works to the extent that I understood them, but I'm really excited to read Love is His Meaning. And anyway, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, Ellen. Thanks for hanging in with me on another mostly no one theology cares what episode. I'm reading. What are you reading? I'm reading a true crime novel. Doesn't <laughs> matter. I don't know what I'm about. Stupid. <laughs> we'll see Doesn't you mean guys. anything. <laughs> hey, you know what? With a new shattering view of the universe, it might mean something. Let's just go. Okay. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Dan, what if Jesus comes back on a white dinosaur? You mean like people at the second would, coming instead of a white horse? People would lose their shit. <laughs>